0: Let me read these verses to you from Psalm 85. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for He will speak peace to His people, to His godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before Him and will make His footsteps into a path. Father, we are so grateful that righteousness and truth are centered in You, that there is no righteousness outside of You, there is no truth outside of You, and the way and the life that have been given to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can gather together freely this morning to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to share in your word. And Father, we just pray that you will be our strength, our guide, you will fill our minds with the truth and righteousness that come from your hand, that we in turn will will spread that truth and that righteousness day by day as we walk with you amongst our family, our friends, our neighbors, our work coworkers, wherever we may be. And Father, I just ask you to glorify your name this day as it is proclaimed worldwide. We ask you for millions of new people to enter your kingdom this day and for the forces of darkness to be shoved back. We're told that the gates of hell will not prevail. They will yield, they will break, and the kingdom of God will penetrate the darkness. And so we pray that that will occur this Sunday and, and your name will be exalted. We thank you for your presence here with us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. On Pentecost, meaning the 50th day after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 120 who were gathered in prayer in the upper room in Jerusalem. The upper room is thought to be on the part of Jerusalem which, became, which is known as Mount Zion, That is the southwest corner of the old city and even outside the old city walls as as you would find them today. Immediately after the Spirit of God came down, and and you read, of course, that beautiful passage in the second chapter of Acts, the people went out into the streets and began to proclaim Jesus with a boldness that they had never known before. And we're told in that passage that 3,000 came to know Christ, and in that one evening or afternoon, whenever, whenever it was. As the word was proclaimed, 3,000 Jews, <laughs> Jewish proselytes, people who were there because it was one of the Jewish feast days, the harvest, festival of harvest. It was not a coincidence that that day in Old Testament times was the beginning of the festival of weeks and it was the day of First fruits, and so on the day of first fruits that had been going on in Jewish society for a millennium and a half, the first fruits of the church were brought. Three thousand souls were added to the church on that very day, and I noted last week that within within weeks the church had grown to fifteen to twenty thousand people. Now talk about preparation. Talk about hearts that had been touched, probably some of those that had stood there and hailed Jesus on Palm Sunday, and then amongst them, some of them, of course, had been responsible for yelling uh, a week later, a few days later, crucify him, but I don't think all. I, I think many were just dumbfounded, and, and I think many of those were those who were part of, of this, this new church of fifteen to 20,000. And as specifically noted last week, this explosive growth frightened the Jewish religious leaders. And at first they threatened the apostles, you can't do this, you can't preach Jesus, this isn't right here, this is a heresy, you know. And when that didn't work, they put him in jail. But then the angel let him out of the jail, which was very frustrating to the Jewish leaders. And we find that what they did was go right back out and preach. You couldn't, you couldn't intimidate the apostles. Fearful of losing their authority, the Jewish leaders became violent in their actions. First, they martyred the deacon Stephen. and We know that story, in, particularly in the seventh chapter of Acts. And then they gave their support to, to Herod Agrippa I when he martyred James ben Zebedee. You know, James and John were brothers, and John would live to be Uh, Maybe Who knows how old John was, but he lived at least, most believe, to the year 100 or beyond. And this was his brother, who was slain many, many years uh, before. However, this violence experienced a a, a radical uh, counteraction by the hand of God when he reached down and dramatically redeemed one of the most violent men of that day, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. I'd like to read, for us to read this morning, from the 26th chapter of the book of Acts. Beginning at verse 9, Paul has been arrested and he's giving his uh, defense before Herod Agrippa II, and we'll we'll talk about him. The handout sheet which I gave to you this morning, I gave this to you just so that you could follow along with the basic chronology of, of what's happening here, and I've included a few things that we've already covered there. Uh, The Julio-Claudian dynasty. That's the first dynasty of Roman emperors. And Augustus, of course, is important because Christ was born uh, during his reign. And then Tiberius, the second emperor, is important because the crucifixion occurred during his reign. But if you look down at the bottom, you see there are two Herod Agrippas. Uh, Herod Agrippa I, uh, he was a grandson of Herod the Great. And then Herod Agrippa II, who was the son of Herod Agrippa I. And this is the Agrippa being referred to in this passage, the second one, the very bottom person here. Uh, But we'll talk about him more later when when we fit into that uh, time period with other factors. But just so you know who we're we're talking about here. He had more limited jurisdiction than his father had had, but but he still uh, plays a significant role here. And so Paul is speaking before him, beginning at verse 9 of Acts chapter 26. So then I thought to myself, as I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also went, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. I mean, he was literally a demon of persecution. While I was so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests at midday. O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads." And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now just put yourself in Saul's sandals at that moment. He has been with great fury going all around, destroying people who who follow the name of Jesus and suddenly out of heaven. I am Jesus. You know, I, I can't imagine anybody at any time ever hearing anything more profound, more dramatic, more powerful than those words which came to Saul's ears at that moment. I mean, it just proved that he was absolutely dead wrong. I mean, most of us don't like to be wrong, but to be dead wrong, to be going exactly in the opposite direction of the direction which you're supposed to be going and thinking you're doing it for God. <laughs> it took him three years to recover from this. <laughs> it sure <yes> it did. <laughs> in the desert. I guess a desert has healing qualities uh, to it. Verse 16 But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I appear to you, will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And so he goes on to talk further to Agrippa about being obedient to that particular call. Saul of Tarsus. Let's, first of all, note where he was headed. He had letters from the high priest authorizing him to persecute the Jews that were following the way, that were following Christ in Damascus. So Damascus is up here. And here you can see the road to Damascus. So he was on the road to Damascus, somewhere. We don't know exactly where along the road, but as he was approaching Damascus out here, that's where he had this dramatic encounter with Christ, which is repeated three times in the book of Acts. Imagine. And Damascus is not exactly what you would consider, you know, a great bastion of Christianity, you know. Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. And it, of course, is a center of of Islam today, but all kinds of other things as well, having to do with many things that are involved in Islam, animism and and, uh, related uh, issues to that. So here is this man moving to carry out the will of God when he has this dramatic encounter. And I include this map here so that You will know where Tarsus is if you're not familiar with Tarsus. Tarsus is located right here. It's in modern-day Turkey. And here it's in, in a region called Cilicia. And just north of Tarsus, there is a valley that leads through the Taurus Mountains. And this valley is called the Cilician Gates because it's the only significant, relatively accessible pass from the coast to the interior of Asia Minor in, in that whole region of Turkey. And so, it was very natural for Paul, who was from Tarsus, later when he began his missionary journeys, to go through that pass and to carry out his ministry up here in Galatia and Cappadocia, as he, as he would do. And uh, we've been to Tarsus, my wife and I, and we've walked, they had just recently when we were there several years ago, they had just recently excavated a road in Tarsus, which they said was the Roman road of Tarsus of the first century. And they were building a building. And as they were drilling, going down, they ran into all of this material, you know, columns and roadway. And so we stood on a roadway where Paul himself would have walked in in the first century as he lived in the city of Tarsus. And then we got to go through the Cilician Gates and And Cappadocia and Galatia and and that particular area. But here is this man from Tarsus. Tarsus was a Roman colonial city. So if you were born in Tarsus, you were a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship in those days was highly prized. It was something that most people wished they had. Not that most Jews were that keen on it. But most people living in the, in the world at that time of, of the Mediterranean knew that if they had Roman citizenship, they had more impunity. I maybe shouldn't use the word impunity, but they had more rights and privileges. So far, you know how big a role the tribe of Benjamin has frequently played. And then he also tells us that he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the leading teacher of the law of that day. So here's Paul born to a middle-class family with Roman citizenship, a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, and having sat at Gamaliel. I mean, he had, if, if he were an admiral, he would, you know, have all of this, what do they call this, uh, brass, uh, fruit, <laughs> Decorate. <laughs> they, they have a specific word for it. So. Come on, Robert. Gingerbread. Gingerbread, okay. <laughs> I we called it in the Navy. <laughs> Is that right? Anyway, he, he, you know, he could have had all of those. And here we go. God rips this finely honed instrument of Satan right out of Satan's hand and says, He's mine. I am going to use him. You know, a- anybody who wants to tell you that there's only one way to come to Jesus Christ and, you know, you have to have prayed a certain prayer and gone to a certain altar and cried a certain number of tears, just read the book of Acts. How many people have been converted by being knocked off their donkey on the road to Damascus? You know, Probably not a whole lot of people have been converted that way. God works in mysterious ways, and sometimes very dramatic ways. As he did is he saved this man and turned him into the greatest missionary of the early church. I mean, a man who had great energy and drive to do what he thought was right, God didn't take away that energy and drive, just turned it in the right direction. 180 de- degrees, now go that way, you know. And he would do that. He first preached to the Jews in the diaspora. He, I mean, his first message was to the Jews. And here's Antioch where uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas were first uh, people, you know, the church laid hands on them. That's where Christianity was born in terms of the name. That's where The followers of Christ were first called Christians, was the scripture tells us in the 13th chapter of Acts, was at the city of Antioch. And then they went forth, and Paul himself particularly preached in the, what we would today call Turkey. This is Turkey, Asia Minor. Several Roman provinces were here, and and he preached all through this area, and he also preached through the Greece and Macedonia area. And of course, he ultimately ended up in Rome, and some people think that there, there are illusions that he may have actually gotten clear over to, to Spain, but and that's not clear that he actually did that. But at least he ministered in this whole area here, ultimately, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with that tremendous energy that he'd had before, which he was using to persecute the Church of Christ. And, and, and then when the Jews of the diaspora just simply stuffed their ears and screamed at him. He said, all right, I'm going to the Gentiles. <laughs> you know, how dramatic. And, and then he began to preach to the, to the Gentiles. And there probably isn't any more powerful sermon in all of the book of Acts than the, than, than the sermon that Paul preached in the 17th chapter of Acts when he stood on the top of the Areopagus in Athens and preached to the pagan Greeks about Jesus Christ. And it's a powerful, powerful message there. And I I think I mentioned to you before that if you go to the Areopagus, that whole sermon is on a brass plaque attached to the rock where he actually preached that particular message. The second half of the book of Acts deals with the missionary journeys of Paul up to about the year 60 or 62, 64, somewhere somewhere around there. We're not sure exactly when he died. It's usually thought that he died around 64, somewhere in in the vicinity of that, maybe 66. However, during the time that Paul is preaching over here and the church is beginning to grow, by the way, just as a little aside, there were more Christians per capita right here in the first century than anywhere else in the world. And yet today this very country, there's some of the probably the fewest Christians per capita than there are anywhere else in the world. Isn't that amazing? How an area that had been such alive and profound and you read about seven of the churches in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation and, and now the light has gone out, you know, so to speak, and the word has spread elsewhere. I think that's one of the reasons why we should really pray for Turkey. You know? God can work a miracle. There and uh, the church has grown a little in, in Turkey, but it's been such a closed, closed land because today Turkey is is secular country. Um, the church, the mosque, and the state are not tied together, but they are traditionally Muslim. But they are materialistic people, and actually, it's harder to reach materialistic people than it is to reach almost anybody. They don't need God, whether it be Allah or. Yahweh or whoever he might be. About five or six years into the development of the church in Israel, the Roman emperor Tiberius died, and and you have his uh, dates here. 14 to 37, those are the dates of his reign. And generally speaking, you can say that the terminal dates of their reign, those dates are also the terminal dates of their lives. Because usually the emperors died in office. It's very rare that an emperor actually would resign. When you get clear to the early 4th century, you will find that there is an emperor, his name is Diocletian, who will actually resign from office and decide, I'm all worn out, I don't want to do this anymore, you know. And he actually resigned from office and let others take over. But usually they died in office, as did uh, Tiberius. It's thought that Tiberius probably did not die of natural causes, but nevertheless uh, he died in office in the year 37. And he was replaced by his grandnephew, Gaius Caesar. Gaius Caesar went by the popular name of Caligula. Most of us have heard of Caligula. He was one of the uh, freaky guys of the, the early Roman Empire, who, who made his own horse his prime minister, and you know a few other. He wanted somebody with horse sense, you know. And Gaius is thought to be implicated in, in the possible murder of his own uh, great-uncle. Tiberius. But whatever the case was, he was young and handsome and uh, only four years in office. He does not die of natural causes either. But one of Caligula's first acts when he became uh, emperor of the Roman Empire was to name a young man by the name of Agrippa, uh, give him a principality over in the Holy Land to rule. This is Agrippa I. If you look at your sheet, he's the Third and fourth generation Herods, Herod Agrippa I. He's the one I'm talking about here. Uh, he had lived some, from the time he was a child in Rome. It was very common in those days for any royal client out inside the Roman Empire to guarantee your loyalty to Rome to keep some member of your family in Rome under watch, as in effect a hostage. And so he had lived from the time he was a child uh, in Rome. He wasn't in prison. He pretty much had uh, the run of the place. And he was very popular, actually, with the royal family in Rome. Herod was. And so he hobnobbed with them throughout the latter days of Augustus and the entire reign of Tiberius. He He was just having a good time doing what young men do, you know, who have nothing else to do with their time but what they feel like doing. And he flattered his way into the good graces of Caligula and was rewarded with the territory of his deceased uncle, Herod Philip. Herod Philip had possessed this territory up here. Herod Antipas had held this territory, and Herod Archelaus had held this territory when Herod the Great died. That's how his dominion was divided up. And uh, you can see the name Philip here in Caesarea Philippi, in honor of Caesar and also in honor of Philip himself. When he died, and he'd been dead actually for several years, when Caligula decided to give him this uh, position as a reward for his flattery and, and his loyalty to Caligula, Herod Agrippa, however, was not satisfied with that. And so what he decided to do was cast his eyes on his uncle Antipas's territories. These two here, Galilee and Perea. And so he began to badmouth his uncle to Caligula. Hey, you know, he's got the ear of the emperor. If you know anything about Caligula, Caligula was extremely neurotic and psychotic even. And if you could get into his good graces and could stay there, you had the moon. But staying there was a hard thing because you never knew when he was going to snap and turn to you and say, commit suicide, you know, just out of the blue. Killed his own wife because uh, she was about ready to bear a child, and he was afraid that child would supersede him as a god. When he first became emperor, he was very young. I I think he was actually in his early 20s, but he was was quite young when he came to power, and he went over the line fairly soon after after he became emperor. Anyway, he accused his uncle Antipas of treason. That was easy to do with Caligula. Just say, hey, you know, he's conspiring against you. Oh, really? He is? Well, get rid of him, you know. And so his uncle was banished to France. <laughs> Might not sound like a bad place to be banished to, but in those days, France was uh, not exactly what it is today. And he was given that territory. So now, Herod Agrippa has his dead uncle Philip's territory. Now he has his banished uncle Antipas's territory. So, so his Territory is growing. Caligula was assassinated in the year 41 simply because people around him knew he was dangerous, and so he was gotten rid of. He'd already murdered his own wife and baby and uh, was considered to be insane, which is what he was. And Agrippa then immediately set about supporting his successor, who was his uncle, not Agrippa's uncle, but Caligula's uncle, um, Claudius. Claudius. And and if you look there you see that the next person after Caligula, who only reigned four years, is Claudius, who who reigns for about thirteen years. Claudius is an older man. And Claudius had managed to survive all the machinations of the royal family. By the way, if you know if anybody thinks the national choir is really screwy and weird, just read the real story of what happened in the in the Roman royal family, and it, you know, it would make the National Enquirer, green with envy, you know, to be able to do that, you know, write that kind of stuff up. There's, there's a Roman author whose name is Suetonius, and he, he includes all the, all that stuff. And in fact, some of you may remember that it's been many years ago now, maybe even a quarter of a century ago now, that there was a television series put out called I Claudius, and that was based on Suetonius's silicious way of reporting this all. What's a good reference for the Roman histories as far as reading about what you're talking about? Anything that you can find written by Michael Grant would be good. He has written a whole I don't know how many books he's written on uh, Greece and Rome. He's one of the best uh, writers of of that particular period, because he's a genuine historian. He's not writing, you know, historical fiction. He's writing from the sources to try to uh, cover this particular period of time. Grant. Michael Grant. Well, as a result of helping Claudius become emperor, Claudius rewarded him by changing Judea from a procuratorship to a kingdom and giving him the crown. So now he is king, of the Jews, king of Judea, and he therefore possesses basically everything that his grandfather Herod the Great had possessed. Only for three years, but nevertheless he he possessed. So he had all this territory, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Trachonitis, and Perea over here. This was all under his rule, Herod Agrippa the first. This is after, of course, the the, the death of Christ and the, the birth of the church, uh, the, the, uh, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus who became Paul, the apostle, uh, this all takes place before he becomes king. It's interesting that <clears throat> Jesus had referred to Herod the Great, well, it had been referred, Herod the Great, of course, was long dead before Jesus was in his ministry, but Herod the Great had been referred to as a fox and this particular man though would best be described as a self-promoting fool in the year 44 he had james ben Zebedee, james the brother of john an apostle of jesus christ not james the just james the just was the brother of jesus who was head of the church in jerusalem this is james the brother of john he had him executed i mentioned that a few minutes ago And he saw that it pleased the Jewish leaders. Oh, they were so happy, those who hated the church, happy to have him executed that he said, hey, I'm I'm making myself famous with the Jews. So he went out and he arrested Peter. And so he was going to do the same with Peter. He was going to have Peter executed. Sadly for Agrippa, that wasn't God's plan. Let, Let me read to you from the 12th chapter of Acts. Reading at verse 18. Acts 12, 18. Now when, the, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea to spend time there. I mean, it was dangerous to be the guards of the apostles in prison because an angel sneaks down and lets them out and the guards don't see anything. They don't know what's happened. And, and how do you excuse that? You know, is Agrippa going to believe, well, you know, in the middle of the night, doors open and shut all by themselves, and Peter walks out, and, you know, I, you guys, you just were asleep at the switch, off with your heads, you know. Verse 20, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's Chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Start contrast there. Agrippa couldn't locate Peter. And so he decides, okay, forget it. And he goes down to Caesarea. This is Caesarea Maritima, uh, which if you've been to Israel, it's a, it's a beautiful place to visit. Um, much of what you'll see there, well, some of what you'll see there is actually a uh, crusader uh, construction. But uh, you will see some of the old uh, harbor there. And there's a uh, amphitheater there which they still use. And Israel has almost no natural, virtually no natural ports along the coast. So they've had to make ports. And so they built the, the port at Caesarea Maritima to be the main port along the coast there for Palestine. And so he goes down there. Now, Caesarea Maritima was also named for Caesar, the maritime <coughs> Caesar, Caesar uh, Caesarea of the Sea as opposed to Caesarea Philippi, which was, was inland. And so the city had been built by his grandfather, Herod. So he goes down there, and he plans a great celebration. And, of course, it talks there about some problems the people of Tyre were having. But the, the point of it is the purpose for the celebration was to honor the emperor Claudius. Because the emperor Claudius had just invaded Britain, had begun the conquest of Britain which Julius Caesar had actually penetrated almost 100 years before, but after seeing what was there, he went back to France and said, forget those people. But now, Claudius successfully begins the invasion of Britain. So way over here, (laughs) to honor him, he holds this celebration. And Josephus says that when he came out to speak on the second day of the celebration, that he was wearing a woven silver robe, a robe made out of woven silver. And so, of course, he had, he he was shiny and glorious and he came out and gave this speech and and these sycophants from from Tyre and Sidon who wanted to be sure that he, uh, you know, let food keep going up there and others, you know, claimed that he was a a voice of a God, not that of a man. Well, you know, that would have been okay if it weren't for the fact that he accepted the acclaim. Ah, yeah, I must be a god. Just like Alexander the Great when he walked out to the, uh, out over here into Egypt to the, uh, what we call it? Oasis of Siwa, and he was told he was the son of God. He said, I knew that all along, didn't I? And, and so it is here with him, he accepts the acclaim and he dies this horrible death because it says the spirit of uh, the, the angel of the Lord struck him with worms, you know, whatever all that means. It doesn't sound real good. And he died. Josephus pretty well corroborates that. He does not the word, but it wasn't intestinal. Yeah. And Michael Grant, the historian I was referring to, doesn't really know what to do with it. He just says he apparently died of some awful disease. <laughs> he didn't, of course. Uh, Grant does, does allude to passages in Scripture, that, uh, but he doesn't always accept. Uh, Grant's not a Christian, uh, what, it, what it says in, in the Scripture. Upon the death of Agrippa I, his entire kingdom was returned to procuratorial status. In other words, the entire kingdom was now put back under a Roman governor, rather than under a descendant of Herod, even though his son will eventually acquire a small part, part of it uh, at, a, at a later date. Brad? The Decapolis over there? Mm-hmm. Why didn't he take that over? Decapolis was a territory which had a majority of Greeks living in it. Decapolis means 10 cities and the 10 cities beginning with Philadelphia down here which is today Amman the capital of Jordan. Rabbah Amman, you know, where the where uh, the forces were over fighting while David was standing around on his palace back home looking down at Beersheba Be- Beersheba, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sheba, <laughs> War- properly named, was it? she was taking a bath, <laughs> anyway, uh, the point is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where were we? <laughs> anyway, these ten cities over here were, there always was an issue between the Greeks and the Jews, almost everywhere, there was trouble between the Greeks and the Jews here in Caesarea, as we're going to see, and that's going to lead to some issues. There was terrible fighting between the Greeks and the Jews in Alexandria in Egypt. and Egypt, and so since it was a Greek, the Greek-speaking people tended to be in the dominance there. The Romans didn't force them to be under Jewish rule, even though it had been part, of course, as you're implying, part of the Jewish state in earlier times. Claudius himself had no personal love for the Jews. And the reason we know this is because in 18th chapter of Acts, the second verse, you don't need to turn there, but it says that, that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. It doesn't say why, and historians have not been able to determine why. All they know is that for some reason, Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome uh, during his reign. From this point on, conditions worsened for the Jews in Israel because of their latent resistance to Rome. The majority of the Jews never accepted Roman domination. They were always resistant to it. There were a few, of course, who went with the flow. There always are some who are chameleons. But the majority resisted. And that's going to lead to the greatest catastrophe for the Jews in the first century. And Jesus had predicted this catastrophe in the 24th chapter of Matthew. And this catastrophe will occur not during the reign of Nero, but the reign of Nero didn't help things improve. Nero becomes the next emperor, and you see him on the list here. And the revolt of the Jews actually begins while Nero is on the throne, even though he's in a very sad state by that time. Mentally, he's totally off the beam. He's gone the way of Caligula and doesn't really know what's going on. But it, it will begin during his reign. But a time goes by too quickly here for me anyway. So what we'll have to do, I guess, is uh, pick up with the coming of Nero to the throne because this is going to lead us to the fulfillment of, of a prophecy that Jesus made to his disciples and which transpires in the year 70. uh, Nero's dead by then, but it's it's a result of the war that began by the Jews against the Romans during the end of Nero's reign there in Rome. And it will have a profound impact on both the Jews and the Christians and the Christians. Remember the scripture, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And actually, some of what transpired in that Jewish war, God turned for good to his people, to the church. We'll note that next week.